Okay, so welcome back. As I mentioned earlier, I've just finished a one-month retreat at home, and I was really lucky to have the opportunity to begin with it with a nine-day online retreat led by Patrick Carney, who's teacher from the Blue Mountains Insight Meditation Center in Australia. And that was followed immediately by a two-week online retreat led by one of my U.S. teachers, Gil Fronston. And I'm incredibly grateful for that opportunity to have been secluded for the whole month. Because one of the many benefits of being more quiet, more inward-focused, is that it helped to reacquaint me with the experience of samadhi which I'll call concentration for now, but I'll give a more nuanced translation soon. So maybe it's a slightly strange analogy, but that experience of rediscovering samadhi felt a bit like, I don't know if you've had that experience of unexpectedly meeting up with an old friend, someone you haven't seen for a while. And perhaps you've had that experience of reconnecting with that person And it's like the friendship just picks up exactly where it left off. Almost as if it's just been a few days since you last saw each other. And perhaps you've also had that experience of re-realizing what a great person that friend is. And wondering why you neglected them for so long. And then making the resolve to spend more time with them again in the future. So in a way, that's how I felt as I was reconnecting with this experience of samadhi. And so, just by coincidence or not, it also happens to be the last quality in this series we've been exploring of the Noble Eightfold Path. So, right or wise samadhi. So this evening, I thought to offer a few reflections on this skillful mental quality, because it is so crucially important to the development and the deepening of our meditation practice. And all through the Buddha's teachings, samadhi is emphasized. But in the insight tradition, at least so far, we've mostly paid a lot more attention to sati, to mindfulness. And even though there are so many discourses where the Buddha says that both of these are necessary for the deepest insights to arise, So one example I shared with you, a metaphor in the teachings, is how sati and samadhi, mindfulness and steadiness, are like two hands washing each other. We need that calm steadiness of mind and the presence of mindfulness if our insight practice is going to develop its full potential. But as I said, in the insight meditation tradition, we don't hear so much about samadhi specifically. In fact, I've even heard at times teachers steer people away from exploring samadhi more carefully. And to me, this is unfortunate because as I was experiencing on this recent retreat, the quality of samadhi is so beneficial in so many ways. That stability, that gatheredness, that deep calm, it provides a for most people, a much-needed rest for the heart and mind, for the whole nervous system, which, as the name nervous system suggests, often is nervous, agitated, anxious, stressed, overwhelmed, just because of how most of us are compelled to live these days. 
So samadhi provides this deep sense of rest, but it's not just a nice, pleasant experience for its own sake, a calm abiding here and now, as it says in the suttas. It's that very steadiness and stillness that helps to open the heart and the mind, to open it to new terrain, to new insight, to new understanding. In fact, it's impossible to develop insight without some degree of samadhi. And that's partly why I somewhat jokingly referred to the title of this talk as Samadhi as a Superpower. So Samadhi as a Superpower because it's profoundly pleasant, profoundly healing, profoundly inspiring and deepening. Now in case for some of you that's sounding like a bit too much profundity or a bit too inaccessible, I want to begin by just exploring some definitions of samadhi, partly to show that it's actually a capacity of mind that all of us already have to some degree. And like all the other skillful qualities in the Buddha's teachings, it's one that can be actively strengthened through training, through practice. So first, just to acknowledge that this term samadhi is yet another one that's not so easy to translate into English with just one word. And that's probably partly because in Western culture so far, samadhi is not a quality that's very highly valued. So we commonly translate it simply as concentration. But more accurately, it's the mind that is gathered, steady, stable, unified and tranquil. So it has a close connection with another Pali term, samatha, which means calm, abiding. So this is how Greg Kramer defines samadhi in the context of the Noble Eightfold Path. He says the Pali term for this path factor, samadhi, denotes a mind that is calm and centered. The word samadhi derives from samadha, meaning to collect or to bring together, which suggests that unification of the mind. The word samadhi is almost interchangeable with the Pali word samatha, which comes from a different root, sam, meaning to become calm or serene. And that aspect of calmness or tranquility is critical to a fuller, effective understanding of samadhi. So samadhi has two key elements. The mind is gathered, one-pointed, unified, and the body-mind is calm. So I want to highlight that quality of calmness because the English word concentration can obscure the fact that samadhi comes from a profound stilling of the mind letting go, settling into just one experience. So some of the other terms for samadhi are undistractedness, non-wavering, steadiness, stability, absorption, unification. And the English word concentration tends not to evoke all of these different nuances. In fact, as Benny was pointing to earlier, it can have connotations of that kind of forced, fixed, sort of furrowed brow focus on the breath. Usually it's the breath and just the breath. And for many people, this creates an unrecognized tension. 
tension in the body, tension in the mind, which can build unseen and actually prevents the samadhi from developing. Now, in the context of our hyper-busy, doing-driven culture, it might sound totally counterintuitive, but the deepest samadhi comes from relaxing and letting go. Ultimately, letting go of any kind of doing whatsoever. And at first, this radical non-doing is experienced as profoundly pleasant. And then as the samadhi develops and gets some momentum, that pleasantness subsides into deeper and deeper states of ease, acceptance, equanimity and peace. So as many of you know, these deepening states of absorption are traditionally known as the four jhana. And there's endless debate within and between traditions and teachers. Endless debate about what exactly constitutes the first jhana, the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana. I don't want to get bogged down in technical definitions of each of the jhanas. Tonight, instead, I'm just going to focus, acknowledge that samadhi can be experienced to a very broad range of depth, and that any degree of samadhi at all is beneficial. So I'm not talking about jhana level of absorption tonight, but that more attainable quality of serenity, of steadiness, stability, that supports our capacity to see clearly, that supports insight to arise. And that is the real purpose of samadhi in the Buddha's teaching. It's not an end in itself, but it's a way of preparing the heart and the mind to open up to new understanding. It's pretty common sense, but unless there's some degree of mental steadiness, we can't see clearly. When the heart-mind is agitated, distracted, scattered, ruminating, caught in those endless self-referencing discursive thoughts... We're jamming our own frequency. We can't see the insights that could arise. So coming back to Greg Kramer, just how he describes some of the benefits of deepening samadhi. In this quote, he is referring to jhana, but keeping in mind any degree of samadhi is helpful. He says, setting aside time to practice developing refined and calm concentration is well worth the effort. It's refreshing. It brings joy and inspiration for deepening the practices of calm and insight. And there are pronounced positive impacts on our lives. Deep calm reveals what is uncalm. It makes us aware of unease, of stressful patterns of thought, and fraught relationships that might have been hidden beneath a layer of agitation. Now, knowing what ease feels like, we're more likely to be able to spot stress and we're more inclined to favor ease instead. We begin to habitually incline towards dispassion, towards contentment, towards non-entanglement. And this is the true, natural beginning of relinquishment. In other words, letting go. So samadhi supports relinquishment. That leads to deeper and deeper letting go, ultimately to the letting go of nibbana, of awakening, of enlightenment. 
So as many of you know, samadhi is also one of the seven factors of awakening. And as we've been discovering, it's the last factor of the Noble Eightfold Path to Freedom. And again, it's possible that some of you hearing talk about jhana states and samadhi as an awakening factor, you might possibly decide, well, this is not relevant to my practice, or possibly might have a thought, well, that's fine for other people, but you don't know my mind right now. So just to keep in mind that it's actually a quality that all of us already have to some degree. And it can be strengthened just by bringing more awareness, more attention to it. And of course cultivated through meditation techniques, such as mindfulness of breathing, the four and the four Brahmavihara heart practices. I'll say a little more about that soon, but just in terms of how it's already an aspect of our mind's capacity, if we had zero capacity to focus and to steady our attention, we wouldn't be able to function in the world. So even right now, as you're listening to this talk, hopefully you might be present for at least a sentence or two before the mind wanders away, and hopefully you notice it and you come back. And just that process of noticing, yeah, my attention got distracted, bringing it back, that is strengthening the quality of samadhi. We can also experience it in our daily lives. We can probably, all of us, think of activities that we do where the mind just very naturally stays present. So, and that's usually because that activity is pleasant in some way. So we talk, for example, about being absorbed in a good book. Well, you could say that's a factor of samadhi. So being absorbed in a good book. For other people, it might be a physical activity, perhaps running or swimming or doing something with our hands, gardening or knitting. Maybe for others it's playing music or listening to music, maybe dancing. Whenever the mind settles more fully into an experience, becomes absorbed in it, its experience is pretty enjoyable and we naturally want to stay present. And this is sometimes referred to in contemporary psychology as a flow state or in sports psychology as being in the zone when it's more fully developed. So to some extent, samadhi is an innate capacity of mind. And we can deepen this experience of absorption and of unification through our meditation practice, particularly uh, through going on retreat, which as many of you know from your own experience, retreat conditions are particularly supportive for that deeper settling into calm. So perhaps not everyone of you here has been on retreats and had a chance to taste those deeper levels of serenity and peace. So maybe for some of you, and I can remember this early on in my own practice, I wonder, well, what's so good about being still and calm? I mean, look at the state of the world. How is that going to help anything? The needs, the demands, the urgent attention of what's happening in the world calling me and isn't it just some kind of self-indulgent escapism to be trying to get calm and quiet when the world is literally burning 
Well, it's partly because of all of those various challenges that we're facing that to be able to at least temporarily release some of that agitation and stress is even more important as a way to help maintain our sanity. So as I mentioned earlier, when the heart and mind can settle into samadhi, it experiences profoundly relaxing. And we can start to let go of some of that accumulated stress and distress and suffering that maybe we hadn't even realized we were carrying until it releases. So samadhi can be a reset of the whole nervous system and it allows us to remember, to re-experience what it's like, at least for a few moments, to not be so entangled and caught up and burdened by all the problems of the world. So there's a relationship, inverse relationship between samadhi and suffering. The heart-mind can only settle into serenity and steadiness to the extent that it's released itself from afflictive mental states. For example, the five hindrances, which are rooted in the harmful energies of greed, hatred and ignorance, also known as compulsion, aversion and delusion. So because samadhi is the experience of the mind released from afflictive states, it gives us a momentary, tiny foretaste of nibbana, which as you know is the heart-mind that is completely free of afflictive states. And even a fleeting experience of samadhi can be experienced as a massive relief. And it gives us confidence or trust that we are on the right path and that freedom is, in fact, possible. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this tonight is, it's to me, it's profoundly sad, even tragic, that most people live their entire lives without realizing what their minds are capable of, never experiencing the many benefits that come from, even temporarily, releasing that incessant self-referencing, that entanglement, and instead experience ease and happiness and peace and freedom. The world would be a completely different place if people learn how to access this capacity of mind. If it was taught in schools within a generation, it would make such a difference to our society. So in some ways, I think of learning to cultivate samadhi as a kind of social service. And of course, there are personal benefits for ourselves. It develops trust and confidence, even awe in this path. As we start to realize the mind opens into new terrain, and we realize that there's a lot more to this than we might have ever imagined from the perspective of our ordinary, everyday mental functioning. And this opening to deeper samadhi in retreat can have a powerful impact on our daily lives too. And one way it does that is through the deep nourishment and contentment it provides. Because when we are able to connect with these states of calm happiness, we're less driven to search for more unskillful sources of pleasure. So those sense-based and temporary pleasures such as food or alcohol or sex or TV or 
online shopping, computer games, and so on. Now, you know, those things in and of themselves aren't necessarily wrong or bad. It is possible to relate to any of them skillfully. But if they're our only source of happiness, we often develop a more compulsive or even addictive relationship to them. So just being able to experience that ease and contentment of samadhi helps soften the grip of those external sense pleasures. And the second benefit of allowing the mind to regularly settle into that stillness and peace is that it can open up the heart more to love. When the heart-mind isn't so caught in that habitual self-referencing and dissatisfaction, there's literally more room there for skillful qualities to grow. So, for example, the four brahma-vihara, metta or kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity. And actually, those heart qualities also support the developing of samadhi. And in the insight tradition, Cultivating the Brahma Viharas is one of the main ways, main methods that we use to deepen samadhi. The other method is anapanasati, or mindfulness of breathing for concentration. So tonight I'm going to focus more on the Brahma Viharas because the advantage of using them as a samadhi technique is that in and of themselves these qualities are skillful. And they support that softening, that opening, that unrelaxing that's needed for true samadhi to emerge and strengthen. And if for whatever reason the samadhi doesn't develop, we have still been strengthening those beautiful qualities of heart and mind. So it's a win-win situation. Now, as I mentioned earlier, one reason many teachers tend to avoid the term concentration is because of those connotations of forceful effort. And depending on our personality type, it can set the stage for unhealthy striving, especially when we hear numbered lists like the four jhanas, one, two, three, four. We instantly want to get to number four. So... I want to emphasize again that the deepest samadhi comes from relaxing and letting go of whatever is not what we're using to develop the samadhi. So if we're doing the Brahma-Vihara phrases, for example, we just keep gently, repeatedly coming back to the words and not getting caught in judging or analyzing anything that might be getting in the way. Those obstacles, we just let them move through. We keep coming back to the phrases. So we're not inadvertently feeding the hindrances and we're not strengthening the self-referencing stories. And eventually, as those habits of mind get weakened, the neuronal pathways of kindness and compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity begin to take their place, get stronger. And over time, they provide the supportive conditions for the ease and peace of samadhi to arise naturally, even effortlessly. Until that point, though, it does take some effort to establish the right conditions. And one of the challenges for many people is just, as I mentioned earlier, the way we live our lives today. 
many of us are consumed by busyness and overwork. We're constantly exhausted and distracted. And then because of that stress, distress, we often act in in unskillful ways just to try to get some temporary relief from it all. So one of the foundational things we need to do if we want to get some of the benefits of samadhi is just take a look at how are we living our lives. Are we living in ways that are conducive to calm, to clarity, to kindness or not? And if not, can we make the necessary changes that will support more ease and peace? So in the discourses, the the traditional text, the what's known as the proximate cause for samadhi to arise is gladness. Specifically, the gladness that comes from being free of the hindrances. And every time that we meditate, during that time, we're not acting out in ways that are harmful. So just to acknowledge that, you know, it's easy to overlook, but let it in every time we're meditating. We're temporarily putting aside gossiping or saying unskillful things or getting drunk and all of those kind of things. We're putting them aside. We're consciously oriented to skillful qualities. And over time, these become more and more our default settings. So it's useful, as I've shared with many of you, to at time to time to look back and see all of the positive changes that have already happened in your life as a result of following this path. And this kind of appreciation can be strengthened, particularly by the Brahmavihara practice of mudita, or appreciative joy. So those of you who've done retreats with me, you know that I usually teach a form of mudita that includes really appreciating our own strengths and good qualities, as well as the more traditional approach of celebrating other people's good fortune. And just to acknowledge that for many people, opening to and owning our own good qualities can be quite a challenge. But this is a practice that was actively encouraged by the Buddha, and specifically as a practice for lay people. So if you are finding it hard to access samadhi, you might begin by building a strong foundation of appreciation and gratitude and really let yourself tune in to the feelings of well-being and ease that come when we can cultivate that more appreciative, open heart-mind. It acts as a powerful support to then settling in to the calm and the steadiness of samadhi. So one of the single most important supports is to, whenever we can, if circumstances allow, to go on retreat. And again, just because, this is because for most of us, ordinary life conditions are not so supportive of ease and calm. In fact, for many people, they actively prevent it. So especially in the beginning, we might need the specialized conditions of the retreat environment to help us to develop that calm and contentment ease. And then as we get um, more familiar with that, as we abide in it, it kind of imprints itself on our neuronal pathways. It imprints itself in our being. And then it's easier to find that experience again in the future, even 
in the more challenging conditions of everyday life. Now, I am, you know, there are many benefits to going on retreat, and I think all of you here are well aware of those. It's also true that there are times for any of us that we circumstances don't allow that. So we do what we can in the context of our daily life to develop that samadhi. And one of the challenges is it can be a bit of a catch-22 situation. Because if we've never experienced it, we don't value it. And if we don't value it, we don't make the effort to set up the conditions that make it available. And so our meditation practice doesn't develop to its full potential. So we want to do what we can to support the development of samadhi in daily life. And so bringing awareness, as I said earlier, to our ethical conduct, keeping the training precepts, really refining our actions in the world, bringing more awareness to how we behave, how we speak, how we use our sexual energy, our relationship to intoxicants. And that includes not only alcohol and recreational drugs, but what we consume in terms of media, of news, of books, of magazines, of movies, not to be puritanical, but to really notice what effect does it have? What effect is what we're taking in having on our hearts, our minds, our overall well-being? So again, because of mainstream culture's obsession with productivity, most of us are compelled to live lives that aren't so conducive to stillness and steadiness. And to so to regularly take some time to practice non-doing, in some ways it's a kind of cultural rebellion. So Margie mentioned sitting and watching the magnolia tree. That's actually quite radical for most people because of the tyranny of our to-do lists and our addiction to busyness. It can actually be very freeing to discover that actually we don't need to justify our existence by being productive every minute of the day. So we can help our nervous systems to acquire the taste for this calm contentment. We can regularly take a day or a half day to unplug, unplug from our electronic devices, do a media fast, withdraw at least temporarily from all forms of technology and just feel what it's like to be more present with the senses, with the elements, and so on. So one teacher friend of mine has a practice that he calls useless gazing. Some of you who've been on retreat with Greg Scharf might remember that. And useless gazing as a practice is pretty much what it sounds like, just staring out of the window, not looking at anything in particular, and just letting the eyes and the brain relax. And the more we can allow ourselves to unhook from the habit of busyness, the easier it will be when we do have the opportunity to go on retreat to let that samadhi develop, not just for our own well-being, but for everyone around us too. So this is perhaps the last way that samadhi is a superpower because of its contribution to world sanity. Okay, so 
I'd like to finish here just so we have time to hear any reflections from any, any of you, how you've experienced samadhi in your own lives and how you might support it to, to develop more fully. Okay, so thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.